You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. Fully Loaded Chew is tobacco-free, long-cut, and pouches that gives you the same pack, dip, spit, and buzz that you're used to without tobacco. Fully Loaded Chew comes in nine flavors and is made with all food-grade ingredients and tobacco-free nicotine, the purest form of nicotine there is. To give us a try, head on over to FullyLoadedChew.com for a $1 can of chew with free shipping when you enter the code OUTDOOR1. O-U-T-D-O-O-R and the number one. Lastly, many outdoorsmen are trying to quit tobacco altogether and fully loaded chew may be that first step. For more information on our product line, visit FullyLoadedChew.com. This is the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast brought to you by Vortex Optics. What's up, suckas? We got a good episode today, and uh, here's the premise behind today's episode. So, I did not draw my Wyoming elk tag, and instead of just writing September off and and uh, you know keeping faith at home or whatever, I decided to start burning my bridges early and uh, go on a hunt in September. And I've I've been having you know all these debates. In, it's a, an internal debate. Do I go try to hunt over-the-counter elk? Do I try to hunt over-the-counter mule deer? Do I try to do over-the-counter whitetails, right? The goal is to find a state that I can go to and, you know, just show up and hunt. I don't need to draw. I don't need anything special. I have all the gear that I already need. And uh, so I brought on a guy who knows a lot about Western type hunts, um, who has, you know, 30 years of experience chasing elk and mule deer and a variety of different game. I brought in uh, Brian Broadwick, Broderick. He is the, uh, he's a stud behind the bow. And he also is the owner of Day Six Arrows, uh, one of my favorite arrows, uh, hands down. Like, I love the brand. I love the... Uh, the owner and uh, just an awesome one of those awesome products that I just really feel comfortable with so and confident with so I brought him on and I pick I, I pick him apart basically I ask him you know what would he do in these type of scenarios uh, given my time frame given the time given the time of year what he likes all that kind of stuff right so he basically basically kind of holds my hand, so to speak, and and guides me through this uh, thought process. And I think by the end of this episode, I have a good idea of what I'm going to do. 
unless something crazy happens, I think I know what I'm going to do. So uh, listen to this entire episode, and by the by the end of it, I think you guys are going to get the the same vibe that I am from from Brian. So it's a it's a really good episode. I, I know it's not whitetail focused, but for you know when it comes to September, a lot of us go out of state and we we go on these western type hunts and it's just something different to do before the whitetail season really starts to hit so i am going to do some commercials real quick and then i'm going to go ahead and get into today's episode uh brian is a wealth of knowledge uh so i think you guys are going to enjoy this but wasp dude um i don't know man i love um just like brian and his company day six I have to be confident with the products that I'm using, right? And when it comes to my broadheads, I'm confident in Wasp. Uh, a majority of their heads are are still made in America, right? I'm a huge fan of two in, two heads in particular. I am huge fan of the Boss Four Blade. That's their fixed blade, and then the Jackhammer. It's one of those. Um, heads. The jackhammer is one of those heads that I've been using for so long that I don't. There's, I have no reason to use anything else, right? So, if you want to go f- find out more information about the broadheads that are made up of, they have the best material. They're constructed out of the best material. They're durable. They completely crush whatever they hit, and uh, they are made by people who have a passion for hunting, right? They're good people, and they give back to the hunting community. So uh, wasparchery.com, and if you do decide to purchase, enter the discount code 9fingers2021. That's the number 9, followed by the word fingers2021, and you're going to save 20% off of your purchase. That's a big uh, that's a big discount. There's that one. Vortex Optics, title sponsor of the Nine Finger Chronicles. And uh, man, once again, a product that I am completely, you know, I am completely confident in. Uh, even when I beat the shit out of my equipment and I break, I know that I have a fallback or a safety net with their VIP warranty where if it, my, my binoculars or spotting scope breaks, I know that I can send it in, they will fix it for free and send it back to me. And what is that what is that what are they telling us by them doing that? They're telling us that they want lifelong customers. So the next time I want to pick up a different binocular or a different spotting scope or a rifle scope or buy a gift for somebody, they want me to think about Vortex first. So customer service above anything else and they have the products to stand behind all that stuff right so it's not just hey we do all these cool things but it's built on the foundation of great products great customer service amazing people amazing people uh, at that company they're doing amazing things Uh, so visit vortexoptics.com for spotters rifle scopes uh, range finders, uh, binoculars, red dots, you name it, they got a, they got an optic for you. And lastly, what are we doing here? Hunt stand. And if this is kind of a perfect transition because I've been on hunt stand a lot lately scouting for public lands in a variety of different states, whether it's in South Dakota for my uh, mule deer hunt, 
if it's in Missouri for a whitetail hunt, Nebraska, Colorado, those are uh, some other states that I'm uh, potentially thinking about hunting this year. And it's always awesome to have good imagery and good information at your fingertips through hunt stand through the hunt stand app and i've just been using it a lot lately to just dig into areas and they have some really they actually have some new maps that have just popped up that are dude the the map the mapping these days is getting ridiculous i mean it's so crystal clear and these guys have access to all of that and uh, it just makes digital scouting, uh, whether you're looking at topo lines, whether you're looking for um, property boundaries between private and public, whether you're looking for uh, the owners of private property, all that stuff, right? It's all at your fingertips with HuntStand. And here's the best part when it comes to this, this app is it's 30 bucks to upgrade. You can download the app for free, but to upgrade to their pro uh, platform, it's 30 bucks for an entire year and uh, that blows some of the other digital mapping uh, companies out of the water so uh, take uh, take that into consideration as well there's so much more that I could go into but I think it's best if you guys just go to huntstand.com read up on all the functionality all the different maps that they have available uh, for you to choose from and uh, just start digging like I did so huntstand.com and uh, now Without further ado, we can get into today's episode with Brian Broderick as he helps me make up my mind about what I'm going to do in September. Three, two, one. All right. On the phone with me today, Mr. Brian Broderick. Brian, how we doing, man? Good. What's shaking, Daddy? Oh, not too much. Just uh, it, this week in Iowa, it's 90s every day. Uh, and t- Wednesday, I think, is supposed to be the hottest at like 99 with one of those heat index deals. But anytime, anywhere, really, you get above 90, it's just hot. And I like to complain about it. I don't want to hear it. Yeah. Why not? Uh, we live, we live in, uh, we're in South Alabama. So yeah. Down here in LA, it's uh, yard, yard dealing with gangs out there. If you want to talk about heat. <laughs> <laughs> That's rookie league. Yeah, I know. I know, but we got, yeah. hey, I, I will say this, and whether, you know, whether this means anything, you probably just are going to uh, shrug this sh- comment right off your shoulder, but we have all the crops in Iowa, right? So yep. they have done studies where the amount of humidity giving, given off by all of the crops here in the state of Iowa actually increase the temperature in Iowa and the humidity in Iowa. So now you're going to try to talk humidity with me <laughs> on the Gulf Coast of Alabama? I mean, you're just digging a deeper hole. You're we right. Were 87%, we were 87% humidity yesterday. Yeah. I don't know what yeah, it is. Stay in, the, stay in the truck on that, Dan. Do you ever, do you ever just uh, bring three T-shirts wherever you go? So whenever you, you get out, you go do something, you got an, a brand new T-shirt in the truck with you? Oh, I've... I, no, I mean it's it's pretty much standard practice. I have multiple shirts in my truck. I mean, for the last thirty years, uh, being <laughs> in construction. So, if I'm on a job, I, I'll tell you what the worst is. It's not outside. It's when you're in a house that's sealed up. You finally got it all dried in. You just get it drywalled. 
but you don't have the thing sealed up where the air's going yet and none of the windows are open. And, I mean, you walk into that thing and it's just you burst into a puddle. Yeah. Um, and then you have to go to a, you know, a meeting at an engineer's office or with a client right from there. So, yeah, I'm constantly uh, bringing in soggy shirts that look like wet towels yeah. you know, every afternoon when I call them. It's just part of life. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we, we go back and forth to Wyoming as well. And, you know, our, our main location is set up in Casper. And, uh, we were out there a week before last. Uh, we just got a new building out there. and We were setting some stuff up. And uh, my wife and I went to lunch. Um, and it, I think it was 92. We went to lunch. Uh, and there was a little bit of a breeze. We sat outside. And she walked back to the truck and got a puppy. Uh, to put it on because there's just there's no humidity and it just it doesn't feel hot yeah. even when it's hot i mean yeah. it's just paradise I love it. yeah of course don't go to wyoming there's nothing there nothing awful. there crime rate <laughs> famine <laughs> plague it's awful so let me let me ask you this you were you're mm-hmm. you were born and raised in the south right in alabama Okay, so yes, sir, on the Gulf Coast. So you're you're technically, technically not like a homegrown uh, Wyoming native, so to speak. So, but you no, I'm a, I'm a Al, South Alabama redneck. That's where we spend most of our most of our time. Right. All right. So as you know, the West, you know, becomes more popular for people not only to come visit, but to you know to stay and live and at the same time you know all these uh eastern hunters they want to come you know through media like what i'm doing and videos and all that stuff people want to start dabbing into the the western experience and hunting uh are are the locals out there in in the west you know because i've i've had some experience with it but are the locals just straight pissed at all that uh, well, I wouldn't say they're pissed as much as I would use the term frustrated and heartbroken. Okay. I think those terms would apply more. I mean, Western folks are really, really friendly. They're really accommodating and welcoming and they're just not, you know, um, the type of people that would begrudge anyone enjoying nature and having a good time. The problem is, is that it's just, uh, uh, I, I feel like it's just a, um, a changing error now where they can't go where dad and granddad and uncle Bob always went out and shot their deer every year and never saw another guy. It's just not like that anymore. Yeah. And, um, I, I think that's probably where the frustration level comes from. And, um, and, you know, most Western states, the residents get the lion's share of the tags, uh, at least 80%, and a lot of them are 90 Uh But still, you know, that influx of, of uh, out-of-state hunters is it's tough to deal with, you know? Yeah. So, you know. Because a lot of your residents are not, like, flooding out, you know, it, flooding out to the, to the places and hunting a week or so at a time, you know, the residents might take a long weekend and go out and historically they might go out and, you know, shoot a deer or an elk or something like that to where when non-residents come, they're coming for a week, 10 days, two weeks. I mean, they're just scouring the landscape. So, 
Um, it's it's just it's different. I've always been that you know that uh, um, interloper, you know that that invasive species, you know, being the eastern guy coming west. I've always been that guy, but you know when I first started doing it, you just didn't see a lot of people. And when you did run across people, normally they were residents and they were super helpful, super yeah. friendly, super accommodating. And that's how I've made some really good friendships, you know, you know, pushing 30 years old, you know, meeting locals on a hillside somewhere. But now it's just uh, just a different game. There's just folks everywhere. You yeah. Know? So I can I can, you know, empathize with their frustrations. Yeah. And, and this is kind of a, a crazy topic because I've heard I've heard the conversations on both sides, right? I, I and I really am still fairly new to the Western hunting game. Uh, I understand residents, you know, feeling like they're being intruded on with so many tags, you know. An, an example like, hey, I've hunted this spot for X number of years. It used to be a family tradition of ours to come out here, and now every time we turn around there's you know a guy's here for a week and then the next week there's a guy here for a week and then the next week there's a guy here for a week all doing the same kind of thing um is there like in your opinion do you think that there is a happy medium to where both sides can be happy or is this one of those things where it's just hey man you just got to deal deal with it and find a new spot or go in deeper or you know hunt smarter or any any scenario like that well I mean, I think before you, I think before you try to establish a solution to any problem, you've got to understand the cause of the problem. Um, so you, you know, you've got to understand the facts, and you've got to understand them for both sides of the argument objectively. And you know, if you look at the the, the Western's point of view, Western person's point of view, hey, you know a lot of these states had tons and tons of government land and public land, you know, you guys sold and developed all yours. We didn't. Yeah. And so now that you've, you know, <laughs> overpopulated and, and, you know, created all this in your home, now you're coming to ours to recreate. And so I understand that side of it for our side, the Easterner is, Hey, our tax dollar spends exactly the same as yours. And while you live in this, you know, say Wyoming, for exist, you know, for, for example, that has less than 600,000 people statewide, well, for the rest of the country, we're, go, you know, we go, hey, your, your tax dollars for your 600,000 people is, you know, a, a half of 1% for the rest of the country that's paid to maintain all that government land yeah. in that state. So it's a great argument on both sides. There's really not a right and wrong. Um, and I don't think anyone's ever going to be really happy happy with the situation either way. So, you know, my solution is, is hey, I want to spend more time out west, so I'm going to move to a, a western state and become a resident and be able to hunt it, you know, um, uh, more like I hunt at home. Yeah in Alabama, which is, hey, take off for three days, go to the camp or go to a piece of property and hunt and then come home. Yeah. And uh, that's the way I'd, I'd like to hunt out west because 
having to having to go to the expense of what it takes to hunt out west with regards to being away from your family financially and then also taking away from you know time off from work um it's there's there's a huge price that's levied you know to 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 do that type of uh trip and then you got to go out there and you've got to plan it you're stuck to set dates and you're going to go for seven days and then you know when you get there those seven days the conditions are crap and you're just stuck stuck in that situation yeah it's hard to be successful consistently uh with those types of trips that's why you'll find that most people are more successful around where they live because they can go when it's good and just go to work when it's not. So yeah. um, that's why hunting out West is hard for people that don't live there. Yeah. Let me ask you a little bit of a, a kind of a strategy question, and this is going to uh, eventually tailspin in what I want to talk, uh, uh, talk to you about today. But uh, you mentioned that, you know, people find more success the close, you know, when they're closer to home, when you, cause I remember the conversation that we had the last time you were on the podcast. And if, uh, for those who are listening, definitely go and listen to the podcast that I did with Brian, uh, previously, very good conversation there, but you mentioned, you know, uh, taking a lot of these, these trips out West and cutting your teeth on elk and mule deer and things like that. Yeah. How, how long did it take you? How many years knowing that you didn't live in that in those areas how many years did it take you to become become comfortable with a certain area thus leading to more success uh i would say probably by the the third time into a specific unit in a specific area i felt pretty good um but that is that's unfair because you're talking about legitimately you're talking about 30 years ago was my first trip out there yeah so um and it it it, it was easier to get a non-resident tag in some areas than it was to get a resident tag because people weren't traveling there wasn't the internet wasn't there i mean um it was just kind of this unknown, unobtainable, uh, you know, thing that, that most people didn't know about unless they lived there. So, you know, when you try to compare that experience then to now, it's a, it's a different game because um, you you weren't dealing with that human effect. You weren't you weren't you didn't have to figure out how the elk or the deer or whatever you were pursuing would flow through that particular country in addition to how they would navigate and, you know, work around the hunting pressure. Yeah. You didn't have that hunting pressure component. Uh, Today it's easier to figure out where the animals are and, and where they're living because of all the technology we have, but it's almost impossible to navigate the hunting pressure waters, if you will. So, yeah. um, it's, it's, it's not that there's less animals. It's just so many more people. Um, so does that three-year rule, would that hold true for me now? For me, it might just because 
you know, I feel like I can go through and dissect a place and eliminate a lot of uh, area before I hit the ground. And then I also can take, you know, real-time data when I get there and hunt three days and go, okay, this isn't working. So now I know how to eliminate everything that's similar to what I've been hunting and now go find where they basically, quote, have to be. If yeah. they're not in these places, they now have to be in these places. Yeah. And, and but that just comes from experience. Yeah. And yeah. Some people just naturally get it and some people naturally don't. Yeah. And and that learning curve is going to be, um, you know, harder, you know, to, you know, it's going to be a, a lengthier process, if you will. Yeah. So what does that, that process look like f- for you? I mean, and did you have any, like, when did this all start to click? And I don't necessarily need, I don't need this answer to be elk or mule deer specific, but through all those years, you know, that, that, that 30 years of going west and trying to locate game and then figuring out they're not here and going where they quote unquote have to be now, right? What did, what did mm-hmm. that process look like? How, how, how would I, someone who's relatively new to the Western game, pick up on, on all those cues to find out where these animals are at? It's pretty easy, actually. Um, you know, locating Western game is substantially easier than locating Eastern game. Uh, and I know that sounds counterintuitive based on our densities and all, but, um, but really there's some pretty simple rules that I've always followed. Number one, you know, step one is always water. That's it. So you basically just go through and identify the water uh, on these, you know, areas that you're going to hunt. And and the wildlife is going to be around the water. Um, It's just, it holds true in every Western state. So that's the first thing is identify all the water. And then you can really quickly eliminate some of these sources of water. Okay, well, that's not going to work. It's right by a camp. This one's not going to work. It's right by a trailhead. This one's not going to work. It's literally on the main road, so on and so forth. So you can go through and then just, you know, systematically rule out the lion share. And then you're left with this next little group, the, the, the remainder of the water sources. Okay. So you look at that and you go, okay, well, these five, there's 10 left. Well, these five are pretty remote. They may or may not hold water just because the map shows that they're there. doesn't mean that, you know, year in and year out, that it's consistently going to hold water. You know, the, the, the rainfall moisture levels control a lot of that. So even if it shows that there's a spring, on drought years, the water table, you know, will will be way, way lower, and some springs will not be flowing above ground. Um, but you that's what boots on the ground, you know, you've got to do when you hit the ground. So, but that's why you want to eliminate as much as you can before you get there so you're not wasting time looking at stuff that's not going to be huntable regardless whether it has water or not. Yeah. And then once you identify the water, you know, you identify the cover around that water and you go, okay, it's super simple process. I know for a fact that they're not going to be bedding in those meadows. They're not going to be bedding, you know, on those roadways over there. They're not going to be bedding on the very top of this, you know, rocky 
mountain that's exposed above tree line. So you eliminate everything that you know there's they're just not going to go there for cover, and then that leaves what's left. And what what's left is is water, cover, and then what is the food source? And that you basically are going to triangulate those three things. Once you start doing that, you'll realize really quickly that the 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 water, the cover, the food. Once that starts triangulating, it's going to start eliminating a lot of stuff naturally. You're going to go, okay, well, it doesn't have one. You know, it doesn't have the, the water factor. It doesn't have the cover factor. It doesn't have the food factor. It doesn't have those things. So if it doesn't have one of those things, um, you know, you're going to rule it out pretty quickly. Dependent on the species is how big that triangulation is. Elk, it can be big because they can cover country fast. Um, it's nothing for them to go a mile or so um, when they, you know, get up out of their bed and, and go to, to water or feed. So that, you know, circle, if you will, is going to be larger, where a deer, it may be a little smaller than that. Yeah. So that that's kind of how, how I do it. But it always starts with water. Um, and then, the, then you've got kind of a few wild carbs, okay? So let's say um, one wild card would be fire. So it's very easy to research now uh, where there are forest fires. And, you know, if you've got a, a, an area that's burned in the last few years, it's going to have all kinds of new regrowth um, and elk and deer and all of bears, everything are going to kind of gravitate towards that. So that's kind of one wild card kicker that'll change it. Um, a second one would be private land. Okay. So let's say that, that you've got this little system set up, but you've found food and cover. I mean, you found water and cover, but there's really no food. But right across the fence line is a big, wide open, you know, ranch that's got pivots or, you know, alfalfa fields, ir you know, irrigated crop, or even if it's just open grazing, they're going to react and, and behave differently um, if they're basically coming and going to private. Uh, these animals just, they, I feel like they know how to read signs, private and public, you know, <laughs> they act different when they're from private. Um, and then, you know, one of my, one of my best places that I've hunted over the years in New Mexico, the, the cover is on um, public the food and the water is on private, but literally just over the fence. And then there's nothing else forever. So they basically have to come back to you uh, into the public uh, to get their cover for the day. So, you, you, you know, they're not going to go the other way and go across 10 miles of, of open prairie, you know? Yeah. So, those are the kind of things that you've just got to be able to, to dissect. Um, it's not, it's not super hard as long as you always just start with water. And I think that's the best takeaway for guys who are trying to figure it out. Yeah. So here, here's my experience with, the, uh, cover when it comes to, um, the, the little experience I, I've had with mule deer and elk, right? Um, it's very mm -hmm. difficult to hunt elk, in let's just say giant dark timber and uh in some of these uh, like nebraska north and south dakota um some of these these draws 
uh, are just so thick and nasty with cover it's hard to hunt within there so you gotta you gotta find some place to post up and watch them come in or you know leave leave that cover and in some instances um by the time they come out it's it's too dark or you know it's uh they're they're heading back into that cover before the you know before the sun's even up in certain uh, instances how how have you played that card uh, you know like it's great to know where the water's at, but if they're hitting it after dark, there's nothing you can do about it. Oh, I, that, that's a super easy answer. I quit. I quit hunting big timber 20 years ago. Okay. It's a kick in the ding ding. It's the most frustrating country to hunt. What well, specific to elk? It's the most frustrating stuff in the world to hunt. Um, when they have too much cover available, there's just no way to consistently kill elk. Um, it's just, it, it's a, it's a nightmare. And so, and, and that's one of the strategies I think I've probably used more than anything is that once I hunted different types of, of country in different States, I, I found, a let's say, a, a, a landscape type or whatever that was conducive to my success. It was, it, whatever it just it, it meshed well with my style uh, more than others and i would say that more open country um really meshed well uh with my style versus the the, the dark timber which again is counterintuitive having a guy come from the southeast who's only hunted timber <laughs> you know yeah. um and and heavy cover but uh I don't know. I just, I, I, I've had so much more success when it's more of a visual game, uh, you know, than anything else. Yeah. And then when I had, when it, back when I was hunting some darker timber stuff, I, I had a couple places in Northern Colorado, um, that I was, you know, pretty consistent in. I had, um, another area in Eastern Idaho. I was pretty consistent in that was both pretty heavy timber stuff. Um, and both of those locations was a, it was a different strategy than I would normally use, which those strategies for the timber areas was, was a primarily a calling type strategy, spending a lot of time on calls. I don't like doing that. Um, but that's kind of how you had to adapt to those areas. Um, so, but you can't do that anymore. I mean, you, you literally, the, the YouTube videos are so damn misleading because they're there to sell elk calls. And if you go through this public land, uh, especially over the counter units, and you're just, you know, just trudging through ridge to ridge, just constantly blowing on your horn, um, I mean, it could happen. But the success rate is so, so low. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and a lot of these guys that are saying, hey, we're on public land, it, they're not. They're on private timber company leases. Um, it's, it's, there's a lot of smoke and mirrors out there. Yeah. And uh, solely for the purpose of just selling, selling crap. So, um, and at the end of the day, you can call it marketing, but where I come from, you, you we call it lying. So 
Yeah. Um, and so there's really no difference between a, a, a small lie and a big lie to me. But uh, so for guys that want to be successful, especially coming from the East with lim- limited amount of time, you know, there may be a lower animal density in a certain area, but if you can get in that area and see what's going on and cover ground and cover a lot of ground visually um, with glass, it, that changes the game for you. Yeah. Um, if you think about, you think about yourself, you think about yourself, like if you look at yourself, like as a, like a little video game and like a little, a little man on a video game and you've got this little circle around you, that's your, your say little ring around you. Well, if you're hunting real dense, heavy timber, you've got this little bitty ring around you. And that's just basically an, an effective ring of, of what you can hear very little what you can see and the kind of, you know, noises you're making, the reach that you're accomplishing with your call. So you have this tiny little ring around you. So if you took that, let's say you just got, you're looking at yourself on a screen and you've got a little ring around you the size of a quarter. Okay. And you've got to go, you've got, you've got five days to go find out, figure out what they're doing and kill them. And so you're going to take that little quarter size ring and you're going to paint you're going to go up and down, up and down in a certain area, and you're going to paint the area that you're going to be able to affect over five days. Well, you're only going to be able to paint a very small section of that big country. But if you go somewhere that's more open and more visual, and you, you're use, utilizing glass, and now you can look at the ring around you on the screen, and now it's the size of a coffee can because of what you can see. Now you can go up and down through that country and, and paint 50 times more area that you're going right. to be effective. Right. It's a, it's, a, it's a real simple approach to, you know, how you're going to capitalize on your limited time there. Because for us, it's all limited time. We don't live there. Right. Yeah, that's a fact. Yeah. That's a fact. I've always thought about using some of the time that I have allotted for hunting and taking a summer trip and doing some scouting but the more i read you know especially when it comes to elk their their winter or let's just say their their july home range is much different than their september uh home range so you're not that that depends of course on that's true to an extent that depends on what type of country you're hunting yeah 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 and i guess i was using i was using that as uh my experience in Colorado, you know, like the 10,000 yeah. feet dark timber, you know, uh, would that be the north facing slopes type type scenario that I that only I yeah. have experience with? Yeah, for me, you know, you know, when it comes to Colorado, I really anymore if I if if somebody forced me to go there and hunt um, for elk specifically, I would hunt the first five six days of the season uh i'd be there two days before the season or maybe three or four depending on what time would allow but i'd be there before the season opened i'd be somewhere where they had some a lot of country above tree line um and i would find those elk up high that are still on that summer pattern getting out of the heat um i'd identify high high elevation water i'd identify you know, get there early and try to find some elk to work up high. 
I'd hunt them through Labor Day, and then I'd that it'd be in my mirror. I'd never look back. Yeah. Because um, after Labor Day in Colorado, it just turns into a, a gong show with people. Yeah. And uh, the pressure just becomes, you know, it, you have to be so lucky. Yeah. Uh, after that. Yeah. Yeah, that's the experience that I've had, and we got we got close a couple times uh, in in Colorado, but uh, not close enough, right? So, um, and this is this is kind of where I want to pivot and, and run run some options by you, and and maybe what would what would Brian do if uh, you were in my shoes right now? So, I um, put in for uh, a Wyoming elk tag this year. I did not draw it, right? I still want to hunt. Se- uh, September. So I have a couple options, right? I can, I can do a, uh, they're all over the counter at this point. Um, I uh-huh. want to do a potential over the counter mule deer hunt. I want to do a Colorado, uh, or potentially a Colorado elk hunt or a Midwestern. There's several States in the Midwest that have over the counter whitetail hunts, knowing that I'm from Iowa, right. uh, and knowing that I have, um, you know, I, I, I'm going to be hunting deer in the rut in Iowa. Uh, where, where does your head lean in, in a scenario like that? Uh, gosh, let me put it to Uh, you this way. Uh, Let me, let me add one more little bit of information. Okay. I am really starting to fall in love with mule deer hunting. Right. So, um, I mean, there definitely are some some over-the-counter mule deer hunts, um, but the areas that 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 uh, they're available, I mean, it's 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 tough hunting. Yeah. There's no doubt about it. Um, and of course, it's you know getting a lot a lot more pressure. Gosh, I guess for over-the-counter mule deer. I mean, I think Nebraska has one, right? Yep. Nebraska has has one. Um, South Dakota's still all draw. Yeah, they're draw, but it's guaranteed. And that's where I'm – South Dakota, I'm going to be going in um, in October. I already have my you, tag. For, you have, have a South Dakota tag? Yes, I already have a South Dakota tag. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. Yeah, because I was going to say, that's, that would probably be um, – for mule deer, that would probably be towards the top of my list as far as a successful over-the-counter, uh, not an over-the-counter, but pretty much a guaranteed draw yeah. hunt. Yeah. Um, there are so many uh, walk-in areas there um, that are basically, you know, they're more they were more established for the bird hunting community. Yeah. Um, but of course, as a, as a deer hunter, you can use it. So. You know, my recommendation for out there, some of the lessons I've learned, because uh, I, I do love hunting South Dakota. Um, one of the lessons that, that really pays dividends is don't go out there after bird season, after pheasant season opens. You know, be there and be gone before it opens. Um, because once bird season opens out there in those those states you're 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 dealing with the orange army that's just going to be pounding that stuff out and those those deer are just you know they're getting ping-ponged around all over creation it's it's hard to to hunt yeah um 
but that last week in September, first week or week of October before the bird season opens on public, man, you can have some, you can have some really good hunts out there. But to me, that is the window for there. Yeah. And, uh, and believe it or not, after that, that window wouldn't open back up until after Thanksgiving when bird season closes. Yeah. But then it's going to be pretty damn cold uh, and pretty tough hunting because you're going to be pretty close to being out of the rut. Um, but it can be done. I mean, I, I shot a buck out there two years ago, um, December 8th or 9th or 10th or something you yeah. know, in the snow. Um, and they were still somewhat pushing around, but not you know, full rut, but, uh, but it can be done, but, you know, you just don't want to be there during bird season would be my advice, but that would probably be, um, you know, what I would recommend. Uh, so for non, so for non-residents, right. So unless you're hunting private property in South Dakota, uh, I have to wait until October 1st, right. So I can, so a non-resident can hunt from September 1st, to the last day in September, but it has to be on private ground. After that, yeah, but the walk-in, but the but the walk-in, the walk-in country out there, the walk-in permit stuff is private, right? But I don't think I can hunt walk-in until October first. Oh, I don't, I don't know that. Yeah, is that I don't know if that's true or not. Yeah, so it's private property that the, that the, the that they allow walk-in hunting on. Yeah. So I'm not a, yeah, that's something I'd have I don't, to. I don't, know, I don't know the particulars on that, but even October 1st, uh, when does bird season open out, out there? It's early on private and then what, the 15th on public? Yes, something like that. So yeah, one thing that I, that we ran into uh, last year or when I went in October by myself was I went out there right away, right? So I went out there for um, opening day or it might've been a day or two after, but it was like the first week I went halfway through the week, the weekend hit. And then it was basically opening weekend, dude. It just everybody guys from Pennsylvania, uh, West Virginia, you know, me from Iowa, um, some locals were out there. So, uh, everybody flooded in, in the first part for this new, uh, for the, you know, the new public land, October 1st. So my thought process was well that was just specifically where where, where you were though. right exactly exactly yeah. um so my my thought process was let that flood of i don't know non-residents come and go and then come out uh later uh maybe towards the mid to end of october and and see what's going on there because it's a little bit closer to the rut and uh i don't know do you have any experience with like how mule deer change their their patterns from early season let's say like the first of october leading into the closer you know as they get closer to the rut yeah so again you go after bird season opens um it's dadgum tough hunting. And then the other thing of it is think about how whitetails act. You've got this early season whitetail that they hadn't figured out their whitetails yet. And, you know, then they get hard horn and they're still a little goofy and they're still doing their, their, their 
you know, pretty patternable feeding, uh, you know, habits. And then they start getting hunted a little bit and it's like, there's no deer left. Yeah. You know, you think, Oh my gosh, all my deer are gone. Did they get killed? Did they get hit by cars? Oh my gosh, this is terrible. And then you start getting close to the rut and not only do they pop up, but all the bucks you never knew existed pop up. And that's the way the mule deer hunting is out there. The first week or so is really good. And then they just disappear, and you think they're, they vanish from the face of the earth uh, until the rut starts coming around. And I think a lot of that has to do with, you know, bird hunting pressure and, you know, uh, just how they normally re- normally act. Yeah. Uh, they're just just very similar to whitetails where they'll go underground. I would never hunt out there during bird season. Um, I would rather hunt afterwards, after the rut, yeah. than hunt during bird season. There. Yeah. So I ended up going back out there this year in December, and yep. don't get me wrong, both times I saw a lot of I saw a lot of deer, but in December, holy cow, man! After the rifle season was over, I think it was a week after the rifle season was over, I went back out there, and it it, it felt like the deer had calmed down a little bit. It was like the week before Christmas, or like ten days before Christmas, like the twelfth around the 12th or whatever, I think I was out there and I saw so many deer. It was ridiculous, mostly does and small bucks. You know, all the giants were on private that I didn't, you know, couldn't get access to hunt, but it was, it was ridiculous. And and then there were so many eyes because they were grouped up in these big groups that every time I thought I was going in on a stock, something would happen. They'd get up and run and I'd look behind me and I'd, I'd find a, a doe standing there that I didn't see. And she busted me. Right. So right. it was just the, it was almost like, it was awesome to see these animals, but it was too many animals to, to go in to make a stock on. Yeah. But I, you know, I would, I would say that I would say that I would still much rather hunt then than, you know, during the middle end of October, yeah. you know, during bird season. Yeah. I mean, I've experienced it. It's just, uh, it, it's, it's just a tough road to hoe, um, for sure. Yeah. What do, in, in your experiences, what does cattle do? Cause there's a lot of places where I, I went where, you know, uh, cattle grazing is leased by somebody on public ground or yeah, on public. Right. Um, do cattle push deer out of the area are they used to them like what's your experience hunting cattle out there with cattle I, I don't i don't think they push them out at all um i will say that depending on the time of year especially if you go late and it's starting to get snow and stuff you know cattle cattle open feed back up for deer in a lot of places um i've seen a lot of mule deer uh you know, come into an area where, let's say, that, that ranchers have been feeding hay, you know, for cattle, and they've got a certain area where they go and they always drop the hay. Uh, where those areas are once the cattle are gone, you know, not standing there. I've seen a lot of deer feeding in those, you know, little small areas where the where the uh, ranchers are dropping hay. And it's not that they're in there eating the hay. I'm sure they are eating some of it, but I feel like they're in there, you know, getting to – you know, the grass that's been exposed um, by those cattle and they're moving around. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so, so that, so that semi fertilized as well, I guess. Yeah. So that, uh, so the snow gets deep it buries the grass. The rancher comes in, drops hay, the, the cows come to the hay and they pat, they like wear all the snow out. So the deer have something yep. to eat is what you're, t- what you're telling me. Well, I've just seen a lot of deer, you know, feeding in those same areas where the, you know, cause the ranchers are going to always feed in the same place because they, they just, they want to get somewhere where they can get to in their truck, drop right. the bales and leave. Right. right. And I've seen a lot of, a lot of mule deer feeding in those areas. Okay. So, yeah. so now based off of kind of what you said, right, <laughs> you've given me, uh-huh. you, I, I've given you my September options, right? And you said, I'm only going to hunt elk in Colorado, the, basically the the first five days or whatever of the season then you also told me that you got you know i'm only gonna hunt mule deer in let's just say out there before the before the bird season starts or after the bird season's over over with so now we have the same time frame still so now it's it's just boiled down to if you were in my shoes and your options were elk colorado mule deer uh one of these one of these dakota states or or nebraska or or wherever there's an over-the-counter tag at um what are your what where would you lean i can make that i can give you a very easy answer from my perspective for that okay Uh, i will probably never hunt over-the-counter colorado elk again okay (laughs) so i gotta i gotta do better at planning is what you're telling me well, I mean, honestly, it was it was one of my go-tos for years. Um, probably, I've, I've probably killed as many elk in over-the-counter uh, Colorado units as any anywhere else, but not in the last ten years, uh, not in the last fifteen years, probably. Where I used to have, let's say, twenty spots in Colorado that I would have just no hesitation to go depending on where I was coming from because I've always been on my way from somewhere further north. I start further north and then I come to Colorado and I'm always on my way to New Mexico for the last half of the season or the last 10 days of the season. But, um, <clears throat> but I bet you I, I, while I've got probably four spots left in Colorado, um, that if I had to, I would hunt, um, you know, some of my friends that, uh, I showed those places to and are still hunting. They're having some success, but it's a battle. Yeah. Um, and if you don't get in and get out, I mean, if you don't get in, get it done and get out, it, it's, it's over pretty quick. Um, but you know, 20 spots to four spots and t- honestly, Two of those four, I, I probably just wouldn't even hunt. Um, but it's it's just gotten that bad, and okay. Uh, yeah. Okay, so that so can't literally. If I, let's say let's say I went to Montana or Wyoming or Idaho or somewhere, and had a ten day elk hunt planned and shot an elk on day one, and now I've got you know, a packed animal out and I still got eight days. Um, and I, you know, I, I know I could just drive into Colorado, go to Walmart, buy elk tag and go to one of these spots. 
I would seriously consider going home before I went and did that. Dang. I mean, it's just, it's gotten that crappy, you know? Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, I don't know. I guess I'm old and uh, I don't, you know, I've got, I've definitely got more patience, but I, I, when it comes to hunting and animals, but I have less patience with humans. Yeah. So I just, I don't know that I, I want to subject myself to it anymore. Yeah. I got you. Tell me, I mean, the last time I, the last time I went out there, I got, I said, I'm, I'm going to go, you know, get packed in. I got, I got packed in. I can't remember 11 or 12 miles into one of the largest wilderness, contiguous wilderness areas in the country. And, uh, there, there were people running elk over those mountains. I mean, it looked like sheep herders and, uh, you just, you could, you couldn't hunt. I mean, one day I had 200 head of elk in the basin screaming like it was a Primos video. And the next day there's, you know, four guys running through there and the elk are scattered like quail and you don't see another elk for three, four days, yeah. you know, then you got to pack your camp and relocate. I mean, it's just a gong show. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy, man. All right. So oh, you've, yeah. ki- you've kind of, you've kind of talked me out, out of Colorado elk now. All right. So now here I am, I'm, I'm leaning towards uh, mule deer. All right. And I'm going to, just because I have um, the ability to hunt public, I'm going to be going sometime after October 1st. And this isn't necessarily a, uh, a question about, uh, you know, hunting a specific time of year. But as someone who has a lot of experience hunting mule deer, what are, what are some things that you've learned about mule deer, per se? Uh, not necessarily maybe a strategy uh, thing, but more along the lines of, you know, when someone says, oh, that's just mule deer being mule deer or whitetail being whitetail, what are some things that you've learned about mule deer that you could share with me that may, uh, you know, make me better or give me a little insight into how they act, how they react type of deal? One of the things that I would say is that mule deer are invisible. Yeah. Um, And so by that, what I mean is, there's a whole different way that you glass for mule deer and look for mule deer. Um, they will let you walk right by them. Oh yeah. Uh, and if it, 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 somehow they know you're not looking their direction, but they'll let you walk right by them. But the other thing is, is that if you set up somewhere to, you know, look for deer, look for deer moving movement, they're invisible. I mean, you, you if you're not, hyper-focused and hyper-detailed on your glassing, you can look over hundreds and hundreds of mule deer and think there's no animals there. Yeah. Um, how they do it, I don't know. But it's, but then it's like once that switch goes off and you know what you're looking for, then it's almost like they just appear. Um, so I think a lot of people look over a lot of deer. Yeah, uh, and they don't realize that they're there, because um, I know I still do it. Because you know I only get to do it once or twice a year at most, and so it takes a few days just to get my eyes back, um, and then you know you start seeing them uh, a little a little easier. Yeah, but that's one thing I would tell people is that that for sure you you've got to slow down and really really look. Um, 
because they're <laughs> they're usually there if you're in the right area. You just you're just not seeing them. Um, the other thing is is that um, mule deer are incredibly good at at basically finding cover in plain sight. Uh, those deer they find these little like micro uh, crevices or little micro areas that may be a couple of just slight indentions with the slightest bit of brush that's, you know, higher than the other stuff that you would never even um, identify as a bedding area. And it's just, it's, it's their favorite spot because they're basically hiding in plain sight and because you're just, you're glazing over it. Um, it's it's rare that you know you let's say that you you look at your maps and you're like, oh, okay, look at this canyon, look at this big old nasty draw, you know, this big gully. Oh, they're got to be in here. They got to be in here. There probably are some does and stuff in those those things, but these bucks will be out in the middle of nowhere in the slightest little depression that. If they were standing, it wouldn't hide them. Yeah. But when they lay down, they're they're gone. Yeah. But it doesn't it doesn't catch your eye as a as a spot, if you will. Yeah. Um, that's another thing that that was hard to learn. Um. And then the other thing is, is man, there's a lot of big deer right by the road. Right by the road big deer i mean i've seen so many of them that live just right off the shoulder if there's just a little depression that it's almost like they're cynical and just devious creatures because they just sit there and giggle <laughs> as all these trucks just drive right by them but there's right. a lot of really big deer right by the road why do you think that is man i don't know um animals are just gonna you know they're, they're going to be in places where they don't die. And, um, and, and I think that, I think that, uh, you know, those, in those animals DNA, I think that there is, um, you know, some, you know, maybe genetic or, um, uh, you know, there's things that are, that are passed down, you know, in their DNA that, that certain spots just become, you know, the certain spots in certain areas become places that deer frequent from crop to crop to crop. Yeah. Um, I just, I just think that's the way it is. Is I think it's the same way that ducks come back to the same areas year after year. Yeah. I think all animals that way. They're so much more in tune with their surroundings than we are. Yeah. Um, and I just think places where animals don't die or places that, you know, are just kind of stamped into their, their, uh, into their DNA. Yeah. And I, I, I found a lot of big deer right by the road. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, man. Um, it's, it's kind of funny you, you saying all these things. Cause I've seen firsthand experience, you know, of everything you've just said. Right. I, I can remember going from a morning glassing spot, watching the deer come off the tops, drop down into these drainages and, you know, watching them bed down. Basically I'm looking for a buck, just all these does, um, a couple really small bucks. And I said, ah, I don't want to make a move on, you know, on those. So then I, they, they all bed down and I 
drop down, I go up another uh, kind of drainage, and I post up on an afternoon type uh, where it's just a lot of land, and I'm I'm glassing an entire basically a valley the opposite end of this valley and i'm glassing i'm glassing i'm glassing nothing 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 so i make my lunch right i sit there pull my pull my spotter right back up and there is this big buck standing in this drainage that i this little drainage that i had glassed for the last hour and a half two hours right just where did he come from right and I guess I just got yeah. lucky and he was moving, he was moving beds. Right. So I, I make a stock on him after he gets down into the second bed and it was so dry that I'm sure he heard me coming because I was crunching all the grass was crunchy, but I walk up to where he was bedded and that bed looked like it had been there for a thousand years. Right. Just this yeah. perfect, I don't know, like a perfect bed in the perfect place. If that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, so, like a half an egg. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, you know, there obviously fur in it and feces in it and, and the tree next to it had a rub on it. And it was just really cool to see. And then as far as, and then as far as, um, you know, on the road is concerned. So I, I, um, I go out to this piece of, uh, uh, public and I park my car and I walk into this point and I'm glassing all the valley but I can still see my truck in, in, in the road. And I look behind me and I see all these deer uh, that are coming up this drainage and all these trucks are driving by and they're glassing from the road, but they can't see cause I'm, I'm looking back at them and they are literally a hundred yards from the, the road. And one of them was a medium sized buck that I ended up putting the stock on and, and blowing. But, uh, but all these does were, were in this drainage. There's a couple of young bucks in this drainage too. And, uh, but again, right by the road. And so the, the fact that these deer are so good at becoming invisible, it just, it, it blows my mind because I'm used to, okay, well, whitetails, it's easy. They're just, they just have all the cover in the world. No, no wonder they just disappear. But then you go out here, it's like, ah, it should be easy to find them. And sometimes it is. And sometimes gee many christmas you're you think that they're they're not there but then the sun starts to go down and they just materialize when they stand up it, it's it it blows my mind and that's why i love it so much well that's why i say they're invisible because yeah. they hide in plain sight yeah um but, but you know that that you said something that touched on another point um that it was you know so loud so crunchy it was going to be almost impossible so one of the things that i have certainly incorporated over the years is basically the strategy of in, being intentionally loud. Yeah. Um, which is very counterintuitive, but people spend all this time learning how to mimic elk sounds and deer sounds and whatever. You know, I have tried to learn how to mimic cattle. Yeah. Um, how cattle sound as they're moving through, uh, you know, terrain and country and how they're, what they sound like when they're feeding and pulling leaves off a brush and, you know, how their hooves are, you know, hitting the rocks and all. Um, if you can figure out, if you'll spend more time figuring out how cattle make sounds versus how to be quiet, because uh, there's some scenarios that you just can't be quiet. I mean, you take, um, uh, you know, the Southwest, Arizona, 
uh, mule deer hunting. It doesn't matter how many pair of socks you put on. It doesn't matter what you do. You can't be quiet. It's not going to happen. So you've got to figure out how to be, you know, intentionally loud, but something that mimics what they're used to because you can watch mule deer and they'll have cows feet across a ridge 30 yards across the top of them and never even look up at them. Yeah. Yeah. What they're used to. And, um, you know, those are the things that, the little things that make a difference uh, in being able to, uh, you know, get in on a deer. The other thing is, is if you're in an area where there's just not cattle or there's nothing that you can mimic to be intentionally loud, what I would say is, is instead of trying to um, sneak in on a deer where there's just impossible to sneak in, I literally would, I literally would just walk straight at them. I almost would, would say walk at them and walk with someone and talk as you're going, but literally just go at them and be talking like you're not hunting. And then when you get in the range, stop and draw. Cause when you stop and draw, that's when they're going to stand up. Yeah. Um, but in, in being intentionally present, intentionally, you know, making yourself known, whether it's as a person or as a, another, you know, cow or some livestock like that, to me, that's been way more successful than trying to be sneaky. Now, of course, when there's conditions are conducive to sneak, I mean, that's my favorite thing to do. Yeah. Um, but uh, it's not always going to happen. Yeah. Uh, okay. Last couple questions here. Um, the last one is any plain state mule deer no nos. Like, do not do this because then you're then you're screwed. Any mule deer no nos. Yeah, mule deer no nos. Um. What's the, what's the next question? Let me think about the first one while you're asking. Okay. My, my, uh, yeah. my, my next question was going to be, um, any tips or tricks or, you know, we've, we've kind of, we've kind of covered a little bit of everything, but is there something that yeah. I need to be aware of when I'm out there? That's just going to say that, that just might elevate me that much more. So, all right. So here's a, for me, here's a no, no on mule deer. So let's say that you're going to hunt an area that you've hunted before. And let's, let's slide back a little bit earlier in the conversation. And you talked about where you found that buck and you found that buck bed and he just, it was home. Um, if you find a place like that, or you know a place like that, just from historical data being there more than once, those are the places that you do not, push them out of um, until the end. Gotcha. Uh, because that's going to be, those kind of areas are going to hold deer in your area as that sanctuary safety zone throughout your hunt. You go in there day one and try to put a stalk on them and blow them out of there. You've basically blown them out of your area. They're not going to just go to the next drainage. That's not what mule deer do. They go to the next area that has another one of those sweet spots for them to feel secure. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So that could be the next so, drainage or the next section. Yeah. Or the next mile. Yeah. 
you don't you don't know. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so that's one thing to know. Um, and as you get to the end, and you've got to push it, you know, that's when you that's when you basically can go in there and try to get on them. Uh, and then the other thing is, I guess the other tip would be, especially in South Dakota, is do not be afraid to knock on doors. Yeah. Um, those people are so nice out there. And even if they tell you no, they're going to talk your ear off for an hour telling you no. <laughs> right, right. Been they there. love to talk. They love to see people. They're super nice. And normally it's going to be, oh, my gosh, I'd love to, but my nephew hunts here or my son hunts here or, you know, whatever. And he told me, don't let anybody. I'd love to let you do it, but he told me not to. Yeah. And then they're going to tell you about all this other stuff. Um, and many times I've been, had that conversation where they've said, God, we would just love to, we don't really care, but you know, our son hunts here and then they start talking then you start talking with them. And an hour later, they're like, well, you know what? You you can hunt, just go over there across there on that section. You can hunt that and just, you know, stay over there. You know, those conversations will lead to that sometimes. Yeah. Um, but don't be afraid to knock on doors because, South Dakotans are just, they're super friendly and, um, uh, there's just a lot of people that are willing to let people hunt. Yeah. 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 I got, I, I gained a little bit of access for a little while when I went back there, uh, when I was there this year. And, uh, so there's that. Um, but I, one, one question I wanted to ask you, I mean, you were the owner of day six arrows or uh, day and yeah. broadheads and, uh, day six gear. So how's business doing? Oh, it's, it's incredible. Yeah. It is, uh, it, it, where we're overwhelmed to the point to where we don't know whether to scratch our watch or wind our butt right now. Right. Um, which is a blessing for sure. I tell you what, man, awesome arrows, love them. Like, uh, and that's no, that's no promotion or anything. It's just like, one thing I love is when I feel confident with my equipment and the people who own the the product or the company are good people uh that is that's a plus so um kudos for having a great product and a great business and uh um uh, everybody needs to go check out their arrows day six but brian man uh, i really appreciate you taking time out of your day to hop on and just bs with me walk me through all these different scenarios educate me a little bit and uh, hopefully uh the uh the, the listeners are as excited to listen to this as I was. So, uh, Brian, thanks, man. Oh, you bet. I enjoyed it. I love this stuff. And there you have it. Huge shout out to Brian. Uh, strongly suggest you guys go check out Day Six Arrows. Huge shout out to Wasp, Vortex, Hunt Stand, Ozonics, Lone Wolf, Exodus, Excalibur. Um, all of these companies that I work with are they're the backgrounds are there the experience is there the products are there the people right the people that work for these companies it's all there and all of that right everything i've just said about those companies is uh why i'm working with them i feel confident in their products and i like working with specific people uh they're 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 participants i always i always try to say this they're they're participants in the category that they're trying to sell into so they're all hardcore hunters and uh all that so huge shout out to all of you 
each and every one of you, uh, man, I, I, I truly and honestly wish all of you uh, the most, the greatest success, whether that's trying to fill the freezer, trying to put some antlers on the wall, or just trying to go out and have fun, which I strongly recommend. Uh, please go out and support uh, the companies that I've mentioned. Um, thank you for downloading. Thank you for your time and patience and understanding. And uh, man, I, it's kind of weird, but I say this, that I, I wish I could meet each and every one of you at some point in throughout this life. Uh, because you, by downloading, you've kind of brought me this happiness in my life. And that's something that I'll never be able to repay. So uh, thank you. And uh, just remember that when life hands you a shit sandwich, just take a bite out of it and smile. Because uh, bitching and complaining aren't, aren't going to get you anywhere. Send the good vibes out. You'll get the good vibes back. And we'll talk to you next time. Thank you.